What makes a hero? According to philosopher and scholar Joseph Campbell, a hero is an archetypal figure who takes a journey from his or her ordinary world, goes out on an adventure, through a decisive crisis wins a victory, then returns home transformed with gained wisdom to offer others. This podcast explores real people, real stories, and the pivotal moments that changed the course of their lives forever. Welcome to the season finale of the Moment When podcast. This is a special episode featuring the highlights of the pivotal moments from the 10 heroes featured in season one. I'm also going to share some behind the scenes about this show, about the history, the process, the music, and a rare appearance from the composer, also known as my husband, Jeff Lambs. And then finally, I will answer some questions that were submitted by my generous Patreon subscribers who support the show every month. May you be inspired to get unstuck and become the hero in your own journey as we revisit the powerful breakthrough lessons from each of my guests. I'm Belinda Lambs, and this is The Moment When. I had no idea I was going to do this podcast. It actually started when I was at a crossroads in my life, in my own heroic journey. I had already been on this epic journey of transformation when my daughter Aria had died. And I was on the other side of that, working through grief and trying to figure out my life. And I had ended up becoming a life coach and coached quite a few people over the years. I always ask myself, what am I here to do? And I started to ask that question again. Is this what I'm here to do to coach people at this stage of my life? I was sort of discouraged and feeling drained. So I thought I need to find something else to put my energy toward. And so my husband, Jeff, and I were having this creative meeting and he said, why don't you do a podcast? Call it the moment when and, you know, interview people because you love to ask people questions and they open up to you. So what if you were to do a show like that? And I immediately felt resistance come up and I said, I do not want to do one more thing in which I fail. And then I heard myself say it, wow, that's the way I'm relating to what I've done. And I thought, that's terrible. Okay, well, that was real. So now I'm on another heroic journey arc, going through my own dark night again. So a little history, I'd already done two podcasts in the past with my friend Stephanie Klein, and I loved doing it. We were doing it in the early days before podcasts were this ubiquitous, and you can get lost in the crowd. I thought about it, and I thought, well... I'll poke at it. I didn't know what the show would be. But what was interesting about it is something resonated inside of me. And I kind of let it form. So I ran into a friend of mine who I hadn't seen in probably 15 or more years. She had lost a child to leukemia as well. And I thought, oh my gosh, she would be the most fantastic guest to have on this podcast if I were to do it. So long story short, she ended up becoming my first guest, Lisa DeLong. And I recorded that episode back in September of 2017 and didn't release it until February of 2018. So that gives you an idea how long it took me to figure out what the show was. So I thought it would be more interesting to make it more of a storytelling show rather than a straight interview. As a life coach, I've been privy to people's inner worlds and the tremendous challenges that they go through and the decisions they make 
to overcome and to change their life. And I thought, man, I want to share this stuff with people. Some of the guests are actually clients that I've worked with. So why am I telling you this? Because we're all on a journey and we each have pivotal moments that change the course of our lives forever. So one of my pivotal moments led me to do this show and I love doing it. It has brought so much joy into my life. I'm creative. I'm sculpting story. I feel challenged and hopefully encouraging you in your journey, which is one of the most important things I believe that I can do with my life. So if you're at a crossroads in your journey and you're not sure what to do, I would encourage you to trust that process, to go up to that wall that you can't see any possibilities in front of and allow yourself to just sit at that wall and ask yourself what you really, really, really want in your life and from your life and see what shows up and follow the little breadcrumbs. It's an exciting adventure, although it can be very challenging. And that's one reason I share these stories. And here are a couple funny behind the scenes issues. So I record this in my office. I have a mic and headphones. I'm sitting at my desk. Well, interestingly enough, we live very near an airport. So every three minutes, a plane is taking off and it's very loud. So I am recording and then I have to stop, let the plane go by and then start recording again. So I always laugh. Well, sometimes I'm actually really pissed, but mostly I laugh. I just think how ironic that we have a studio and we live under an airport. And here's the plane going by now. See what I'm saying? Another funny thing is just dealing with my voice. Microphones pick up every little nuance. So if I have a sinus condition, which I kind of do right now, you're going to hear it. If my stomach growls, you're going to hear it. If my voice is dry, you're going to hear it. So I will be chugging water and clearing my throat and drinking olive oil sometimes to smooth it out. So it sounds a little bit better for you. But today I decided to drink Earl Grey tea because I just wanted to and it's totally dehydrating and that's okay because this is a special episode. (sighs) So my husband Jeff composes the music for the show. He writes an original piece for each guest and I would like to ask him a few questions and let you have a little window into his process. Hi Jeff. Hi Belinda. What is your process of composing a piece for each individual guest? Well, my process varies. Sometimes I uh, search through my archive of already composed music after hearing a little bit of the interview. Sometimes I realize that I have something already recorded that could go along with kind of the personality of that guest. Other times I listen to a bit of the story and it elicits what I would say a palette of sounds, of resources to go to. Maybe an idea comes out of that, but it varies. The, the process is different all the time because the guests are different. So is there one in particular that you're proud of? I think I like the way that Dan Tacchini's soundtrack came out. So in that episode, he uh, is revealing that much of his life he was a fraud. I thought it would be kind of interesting to have the intimacy of a spinet piano to be the main source of that, kind of like uh, The Score of the Beautiful Mind by Thomas Newman. So yeah, that one I guess I'm proud of. So in the journey of composing a piece, 
Do you ever encounter an all is lost moment? <laughs> and if so, what do you do? Well, there's there's been a couple times where nailing the right treatment for the interview has been difficult. So I think one of the episodes, there was eight or nine approaches to the soundtrack. It just didn't feel like anything was really fitting. And then, you know, like the ninth one felt like it came together. Yeah. So what's your lesson then? Just keep going. Keep fishing. Keep fishing till you catch a real big one. What's your favorite aspect of the process? Well, there's something kind of magical when the idea finally, when it's laid behind the interview and when you do the final editing and realize that, oh, the the music really does fit the moment, the moment when, you know, (laughs) when it finally lands and it adds that emotional component to the story. What do you find difficult? about the process? Um, probably the process in general about composing is that sometimes you just, you can sit down and just stare at the keyboard or stare at the computer and nothing comes. So I guess in general, composing is is kind of elusive. Sometimes the ideas come, you know, there's not a deficit of ideas or directions to go. And other times you just kind of sit there blank. So where do you think that music does come from? Probably a combination of skills and just mystery. I love that. Something deep inside that's touching, you know, the language of music. And I think that, you know, when you listen to some of these stories of your guests, is like uh, sometimes you can't imagine what they've had to go through. And um, if you can tap into what's happening inside and allow the music to give language to it, that's kind of cool. Well, you certainly do that very well. You're so good at grabbing the essence of the story through the music and bringing the whole thing to another level. And I know because I hear it before, and it's an incredible story, and then the music's there is just the whole thing is elevated, and you are fantastic at what you do, and I'm very grateful. So, hey, what's it like working with me? Well, it's really fun. It's fun doing stuff together. It's a creative and it's fun hearing these people's stories and giving them a platform. Also knowing that listeners are gaining inspiration and motivation and hope maybe for their own journey. Do you have anything up your sleeve for season two that we should know about? I haven't told you yet, but I plan on buying a recording studio. That's not under an airport? (laughs) Thank you, my love. Thank you, my love. You can listen to all the episodes from Season 1 on soulorganizer.com and on most podcast platforms. As a special request, please subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcast. It will help us grow and get these great stories out to those who need them. Okay, now we're going to talk about each of the 10 episodes that were featured in Season 1. I'm going to share the moment before the moment when, and then the pivotal moment that shifted the course of each of these fantastic guests. You'll also hear the musical theme playing underneath these segments. I think it's powerfully important for us to notice what the architecture of transformation really is, so you can actually identify something in your own life that maybe you can shift. Episode one was with Lisa DeLong, and it was called When Lightning Strikes Twice. Lisa's eldest son, Justin, had leukemia, went through treatment, was fine, and then 10 years later, he ended up dying. 
She had thought her worst days were behind her. The day that Justin died, I remember being in the ICU and we were standing around his body and his oncologist came in and, and I was holding Jacob in my arms. I, I looked at her and I said, tell me this can't happen again. And she said, you know, no, it won't happen again. It's not that kind of leukemia. Then her youngest son, Jacob, got leukemia. She had to dig deep to find a way to not only survive, but to thrive. Her pivotal moment came when Jacob was on his deathbed from the side effects of chemo. I remember walking out the door of that room and walking down the hall at Children's Hospital LA and there's these big windows that open the giant ceiling, the floor windows, and I looked out. I put my hands on the window and I, and I saw the Hollywood sign and I see Sunset Boulevard and cars buzzing by, and, you know, a woman pushing a stroller and a man with a briefcase, all these things. It was like all this life going on out there. And I just thought, what the hell am I doing in here again? I can't do this again. <laughs> and I raised my fist to God and I said, quit picking on my boys. And I just cried and cried and cried. And all of a sudden, I felt this sense of peace pour over me from the crown of my head to the bottom of my soul. And I knew that Jacob would live. It's like it came into my body in my marrow. I knew it in my marrow that he would live. Okay, episode two was with Robin Severn Fischette. It was called When a House Collapses. Robin is my sister, and she had gone through a painful divorce, something she had never imagined for herself. And through the stress, her health had started to break down, and that kicked off a series of wake-up calls. There were two things that really kind of woke me up at that time. One was I could tell that, you know, the, my closest person in my life, my husband, was disinterested and lacked care for me during that time it wasn't didn't even ask you know what was going on or how I was doing it was like totally disenfranchised and that blew my mind like do you not care that I'm hurting I mean what if I have cancer you know I didn't know what I had and the other thing that woke me up was one of my last visits to a dermatologist for the skin conditions I was asking him questions and my mind would just go down the rabbit holes of fear. And so I was probably shooting them out at him like a machine gun. <laughs> and he basically looked at me sternly and he said, if you don't calm down, no amount of medicine is gonna help you. Robin's pivotal moment came when she recognized that it was her responsibility to change her own life. The first thing I had to decide in that moment was, how do I want to live now? If everything that I've been doing has led me here, what has to change? And how do I want to live from here forward? And I realized I don't want to live the rest of my life sick, sad, lonely, and heartbroken. I did not want that to be my story. So that was the moment I decided I've got to do whatever it takes to be well and figure out what that means. And I knew that the only person who could make that happen was me. 
Episode number three is with Clayton Light, and it's called When the Light is Dark. Clayton candidly shares his battle with alcoholism and the devastation it visited on his life. His wife had finally had enough and sent him back to his hometown. He ended up staying with a friend who had gotten sober and offered to help Clayton by taking him to meetings. I remember the first night I was there, I was um, in the bedroom at my friend's house, and there was this inflatable bed next to a window, and that was all that was in the room. And I laid down there next to the window, and the moon was really big in the sky, and the moonlight was just like, I was just kind of like bathed in this moonlight laying there, just like, where am I? What's what's happening in my life? And And I knew that I was not going to drink for a while. And so the first step I took was I just accepted that. I didn't have any intention of, of getting sober like as a way of life. But the first step was that first night laying there, I felt this acceptance come over me that for right now, for this thing, this experience that I was having, that I wasn't going to drink. And I just accepted that. And I think that was the first thing that started to turn things for me. Clayton's pivotal moment was a critical moment of decision. I came to a realization that I needed to either hold on to that hope and grow it, or I was going to be lost for good. Because I, I just had this sense that the kind of revelation that I was having was a one-time thing. It wasn't like I could just go back and then pick up this sense of hope later. This was my window. I was this this curtain being lifted for me to see what was possible and the kind of feelings it was making me have. I had to seize that at that moment or just give up for good. So I came to a fork in the road and it was like, are you going to live or are you going to die? Literally, that's what it was. Episode four was with Danny Davis called When the Truth is a Lie. She was utterly caught off guard when she discovered her husband had been hiding enormous tax liens inside of his jacket lining. After trying to salvage the trauma of this discovery, he had decided to end the marriage, citing that he never loved her. The truth of her reality was completely shaken. There was so much information that flew at me in that moment when he called me that I wasn't prepared for, that I wouldn't have ever imagined would have been something I would have to carry and journey with. Just annihilating our our relationship, our bond, our connection, our past, who I was to him, just telling me that from the very start, it was never what I thought it was. I think the one thing that was very powerful for me that took years for me to settle in, in my mind was a statement that said, I hated you from the fifth day of our relationship. Wow. It's just like going back and rewriting the entire yes. story yes. that you were living in. Yes. And you're like, oh my God, that was 15 years ago. Like, how do I make sense of that? You know, like it was, <laughs> you know. How do I make sense of everything we created and who I believe we were to each other? And how do I make sense of these children? And how do I make sense of this work? And how do I make sense of anything I thought was true? Because apparently none of it was true. 
Danny shared a couple pivotal moments in her story. One was when she was spiraling into fear and depression from all the painful events. Something that was bigger than herself caused her to shift into courage. It wasn't until the kids started going down, I then felt the serious challenge of this journey. That's when I was really in it. It was fighting for the kids and fighting for their well-being that woke up in me the understanding that I had this and I did not need to worry about my ability to get us there, that I was just charged with getting us there. And while the outcome might not be what I had ever hoped for, I was gonna get us there and I was gonna get everyone safely across the finish line. Episode five was with Naomi Collins Belts, and it was called When the River Runs Dry. Naomi had gone on an adventure to Israel to find her grand destiny, and she believed it would look a certain way. But instead, her life started to disintegrate and she fell into a deep depression. I had this belief that God called us to Israel and therefore that meant blah, 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 right? That Mm, we would mm -hmm. be successful, that we would build this big thing that was my destiny, that I would become well-known, that I would suddenly be an A-lifter in the ministry world, that I wouldn't be hidden like I felt completely hidden. So there were all these things that I thought, okay, well, surely we didn't sell our house and move to Israel to then pack it up and move back. That was not in my mind at all. The biggest resistance inside of me was failure. This meant I was a failure. So I just honestly became so desperate. And I just thought, I can't do this anymore. So Naomi had come to an all is lost moment in her journey. And that's when her husband got clarity and channeled this hopeful message. He suddenly became like this clear bell. He just said to me, sweetie, what if we were to move back to California? I just saw him in a different way. I saw a light in him. I saw his connection to himself and to me and spiritually. And when he said that in this very calm and centered way, sweetie, I believe our destination hasn't changed, but our route has, that was the pivotal moment. That opened me up enough to say, oh, what if I could leave Israel and not be an ethics failure? And then things began showing up kind of like they did when we moved there, like confirmation. Little things that I thought, oh, we could never move back. We're broke. Oh, we could sell our cars. That could pay for it. Or just ideas began to pop into my head. Sounded like hope came. Little raindrops of hope. Episode 6 was with Sarah Teeting called When the Devil is in the Details. Sarah's story is particularly difficult. She had hired a night nurse to take care of her newborn twins. After multiple injuries were found on the babies, it was discovered that this nanny was abusing the babies by pinching them and breaking their bones. 
I was kind of exploring these different aspects of the existence of evil in the world, or you know, was it that she had been abused? And at the same time, this overwhelming guilt that I should have known. Looking back, I had these pangs of intuition, but I used my rational brain to, to address them. And, you know, like she wasn't as close to the kids as I thought, you know, she probably should be. I was like, well, wow, if I was gonna come in and be with brand new babies for three months and then leave, I wouldn't want to get too attached either. But I had an extreme. I mean, I was dealing with just crushing guilt because every species on the planet knows how to protect their young and I failed. If I can't trust myself to know the most basic of instincts, which is how to take care of you know, my babies, how can I trust myself with anything? Sarah's pivotal moment came when she realized that the best way to protect her children was to not allow the trauma to continue to ruin the rest of their lives. The biggest impact that it could have on them is how Dan and I reacted to it. So if we became people who were less trusting, if we became people who who really did believe in evil and taught them that they had to watch out for that in the world, or we became more closed, like that is how Calvin and Grace would be impacted long term. So, you know, I knew that the healing that needed to be done had to be done to prevent longer-term issues. Episode 7 was with Madeline Brandley called When the Tide Goes Out. After her husband had died, one of her grown daughters had essentially taken off after having an argument with her sister. They didn't hear from her for years, and Madeline had to grapple with the loss. I was living with the idea that I might never see her again. Mm -hmm. And I knew that their possibility was there that I would, just as the possibility was there that I wouldn't. After struggling through all of that, I decided it was easier and more peaceful just to say, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. But for me, it's a moment of pondering the one or the other and putting a stake in, this is what I hope will happen. I didn't hope for it anymore. To hope for something like that puts a lot of strain on your heart energy because the other side of hope is the fear that it won't happen. So it's really difficult to sustain hope that something will happen like that without experiencing an equal or greater amount of fear that it won't. And since I had decided not to live in a state of fear and it wasn't that I wasn't hopeful, I just decided to live in a state of peace for whatever would come. Madeline's pivotal moment came as an understanding. It was, I think, the journey of how to infuse loss with love and the understanding of that love doesn't ever go away and that it, it's everywhere, that you can send it out at will and that you can receive it, you can try to reject it, but that it's this energy wave that surrounds people that you love. and. At the moment, it was not a day I could remember, but it was a moment in time when I understood that this idea of unconditional love, the undeniable power of unconditional love, was what was going to change my life going forward. Episode 8 was with Dan Dakini, and it's called When the Jig is Up. Dan is a transformational trainer. And early in his marriage, he and his wife Eileen were about to split up. 
Since they had a son together, they decided to try and work it out. So they had these morning conversations where they would hash through different issues. In this particular conversation, Dan kept accusing Eileen of not being willing to get a job and help out with the family finances. She insisted that's not what she was saying, but he couldn't hear anything else. And the next morning I get up and I go into the kitchen to talk. She's got a tape recorder on the counter. (laughs) I said, Hmm. what the hell's that? You know, what are you doing with that thing? She said, I, well, let's just see what your ears and what you're hearing, Mr. Trainer, because you're not hearing me and maybe I'm not hearing you. So this way we can test our ears. So I said, okay, turn it on. So we started talking and sure enough, we forgot that it was on. And about 20 minutes later, I'm starting to escalate. I'm saying to her, well, so you don't want to help. And she sees me escalating. So she says, stop, man, just stop for a second. Pushes the button. So let's hear what the tape recorder said. So she runs it back. What I had said was, hey, we're running out of savings and I don't know how much long we can do this for like eight or nine months, but you know, at that point, we're going to be out of savings. What are we going to do? And do you want to help or can you help? And she said, Dan, I want to help. I'm willing to do whatever I can do, but I, I'm not willing to leave Danny at a babysitter's. That's when I said, well, you don't want to help then. Then she said, I didn't say that. So then I turned the tape recorder off and I said, okay, you didn't say that exactly, but you meant it, right? And she rolls her eyes and says, you know, look, man. And I said, okay, good. If you meant it, then what would you do? Because I thought I'd catch her off guard. She goes, wait a minute. She pulls out of her purse a two-page business plan for a daycare center. So Dan had his pivotal moment when his ears were opened so he could hear what his wife was actually saying to him. That's when I realized that the very work I was doing, I wasn't really practicing. And the difference between what I was saying about what Eileen was saying and what Eileen was saying was quite vast and I had collapsed the two and it was a profound revelation for me. And then I started wondering where else am I doing this in my life? Episode nine was with Janice Freeman and it was called When the Pill is Bitter. This episode was particularly fun because we were in the same room and it's the only one I did like that the whole season. Janice shared about her rough upbringing with multiple kinds of abuse, and then she ended up getting some critical illnesses, and one of them almost killed her. So she had the odds really stacked against her, including being severely wronged by people that she trusted. Nobody knew that I was dealing with sexual abuse in the church. And the pastor, including his son, was sexually harassing me and molesting me and How do you expect me to live what you're saying and you aren't living what you're saying? And I'm supposed to deal with this hurt? No, 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 no. So I had to resign. And uh, I just hate it. I I hated church. I hated singing. I stopped singing for a long time. I didn't want anything associated to that or anything that I had to do. I was like, God, I love you, but I don't, nobody better not ask me to join, come visit, nothing. Janice had her pivotal moment when she recognized that her life was about something bigger than just suffering with this pain. I had this beautiful little baby growing up and how can I be her mommy, you know, and teach her the right things and have her pay for my bitterness or things that I won't let go or my unforgiveness. I don't want that for her. And the moment I let that go, the moment I let what I felt I was entitled to, what I felt, I, I, cause I'm entitled to this pain. I'm entitled to feeling like, you know, I deserve to be pessimistic and 
I don't, you know, I don't care. And when I once I let that go, everything started to flourish. I mean, I met my husband, who is amazing. I started singing again, gigs start coming. My household was happy, you know what I mean? And I, I, I found a church, finally, because I trusted them enough to even walk through the door. Episode 10 was with Audley Harrison, and it's called When the Dream is Caged. This was the final episode of Season 1. It's a beautiful story of how Audley became an Olympic gold medalist in heavyweight boxing for Great Britain. Audley's early life was pretty rough. He had had an epiphany when he was nine years old that someday he would be a famous sportsman, but then he ended up just getting into trouble and living life on the streets, which finally led him into jail. So basically, I'm locked up in a young offenders institution. No qualifications from school. What am I going to do with my life? And I sat in, in my cell and I thought, I've done this. I've got my, my degree, so to speak, in being a bad boy, but I don't want to come back to this. I don't want to be here again. Losing your summer, losing your liberty, and sitting in a, in a 10 by 8 room by yourself, the fun kind of wore off after a little while. So I was like, okay, I've got to find some other solutions when I get out, but not quite knowing what I was going to do. Oddly's pivotal moment came through a set of seemingly random circumstances. He had gotten out of jail, he got into a street fight, and through that discovered he had talent for boxing and he was encouraged to go and develop that skill. We walked into that boxing gym and that was my pivotal moment because when I went in there and I moved around in the ring, I had all the confidence, all the swagger, had skills, you know, skills to pay the bills, as they say. I had that, that little spark, that little thing that made me think, oh my God, this feels like that epiphany that I had at nine years of age. I, I straight away went to the Rocky movies, straight away went to, this is the sport. This sport is gonna take me all the way to the top. These amazing episodes are made possible by the generous monthly support of our Patreon subscribers. You can become a part of our team with as little as $5 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash Belinda Lambs and sign up. Okay, so the final segment of this episode is taking questions from the patrons, the people that support this show, who have been so generous with their monthly donations, and I ask them to submit questions that I could answer, anything that they're curious about with the show or whatever. So let me start with the first one. This is from a gal named Sue, who is a friend of mine. And she said, what do the stories you choose to tell reveal about who Belinda is? Ooh, well, I choose to tell stories of people generally that I already know who have gone through something quite strong that has shifted them. The quality I notice in these people is a humility that comes from getting to something really authentic. So I think what it tells about me is that I am a lover of authenticity, of the truth of who a person really is in that moment in their life. I appreciate that. I tried to be that. I think I'm very open to different stories. And so I include very diverse backgrounds in these people um, because I feel 
open to people's journeys and how they understand their lives. I think it's really important to give room for that and not just narrow it into one type of person. So the common thread is that they've gone through a true transformational arc in their lives. So I think that tells you about me. I care about that very much. I've been through that. I continue to go through that. Okay, so thanks for that question, Sue. Okay, another question comes from Naomi, and she says, how has making this show impacted you? Have you gone through transformations through the series? Okay, well, these stories shape me deeply, and I'll tell you why. I listen to them so many times as I edit and sculpt the storytelling aspects. I'm trimming out a lot of parts that are maybe repeating a concept or um, maybe the person had to stop or whatever. So there's a lot of shaping that goes on. And then it's being told through me, even though they're telling it, I'm kind of punctuating certain aspects of it. And it shapes me because I keep hearing what they learned over and over as I listen back. And if I'm doing that, then I think hopefully you're doing that as the listener. I find it to be really helpful. And then writing the blogs has helped uh, extract that out even more. So I get more detail and think it through. And so it's been really powerful for me. So yes, I have gone through transformations. Uh, it reminds me of concepts that I've already known about that I forget. And some of them I had already discussed as we did the highlights. And Naomi also asked, what's your favorite part of making the show? Well, I don't know if there's a favorite part, but I'll tell you some of them. I love when I first get the transcription back from the transcriber, and it's this kind of raw clay that I get to sculpt. So there's something really fun about starting a project for me. And usually there's some separation in time from when I record the show until I, when I get back the transcription. So I'm kind of stepped away from hearing it, knowing about it. So it's like a new show when I get the transcription. And I read it through first, and I start marking up where I see the hero's journey stages and kind of identify them and um, cross out things that I know are not going to stay in the show. And I think that's a really fun part of the editing process. And then I actually just like physically editing. I use GarageBand. And it's something very soothing. I can just do it for hours. And then um, telling the story, finding a way to tell the story. That's more of a challenging part, but I love it. And I'll tell you one of the hardest parts, I almost always hit a wall, is when I come to writing the narration. How I will weave the pieces together and tell their story without leaving in all their details. So I'm taking their details of furthering their journey and I'm squishing them down to it into a few sentences to further it along. And that is a really hard aspect, but you know, it's not my favorite part, but it's gotta be done. Naomi also asked, thank you, Naomi, by the way, for all these questions. What kind of feedback have you received that has meant the most to you? I think it means a lot to me when people are excited by what they heard. When they go, oh, that was such a good story. Oh, that was so inspiring. And Naomi has been one of those people that regularly lets me know. And it's encouraging to me because it's very quiet over here in podcast world. It's isolated. And I'm in this room by myself right now and talking to a mic. 
And I wonder, are people really listening? Do they care? Do they enjoy it? And I don't hear back all that much, but when I do, it's pretty darn nice. So I guess just that people are enjoying it and getting something out of it. Okay, and a question from Susie. She said, I'd love to know what guest has surprised you the most. Was something they said or something that dropped in on you, even something that left you speechless? I was surprised in Lisa's episode, the first one, when she talked about her second boy and how she found it really hard to love him at first because she had lost her first boy and she was afraid to open her heart. That kind of took me aback and I could imagine doing that. Has anything left me speechless? Maybe you wish it would. (laughs) Not yet, although I'm in awe of everybody's powerful souls. Okay, well, I want to say thank you so much for listening to this final episode of season one. And I'd like to thank each person that has supported this podcast this year by name, because I'm so incredibly grateful to you. Madeline Brantley, Dan LaMaitre and Sarah Teeting, Jean and Susan Miller, John and Karen Ferraro, Denise Kaufman, Robin Severn Fischette, Peter and Susan Spensk, Jonathan Severn, Rose Burton, Paul and Naomi Belt, Glenn and Allie Holman, and Jeff Dykhouse. The Moment When is produced by Soul Organizer. Music is composed by Jeff Lambs. We have many more fabulous guests coming on Season 2. Stay tuned. Until then, I'm Belinda Lambs. <laughs>